2 Samuel chapter 11 is one of those, we began it last time we were together uh, a couple Sundays ago uh, in 2 Samuel, when, when David should have been out fighting, and instead of uh, being out fighting, he's at home, and he's walking on his roof, and he sees Bathsheba. He can't resist, and he, he takes her to be his. She's pregnant, and that's the last word we read at, at that time together. And that's what the word says at the end of verse 5. Uh, she sends a message to David, I am pregnant. Now, I'm going to have to admit uh, something to you uh, that I think you would probably say amen to is, I would not want the sinful parts of my life to be written down in a story like David's is in this book, to be kept forever and read over and over by God's people. I would not want my story to be read like that. The poor guy made a mistake a serious lapse of judgment, and it's put out there for the world to see. We all have sinful lapses in our lives. We all know it. Scripture even tells us that. It's uh, very honest about it. But David's is out there in full view of everybody for all of time. Ouch! That just... But, you know, since we have it, right? Isn't that what Scripture's for? All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for what kind of things? Can you remember it's useful for... Reprove, correction, training, and righteousness, and, and instruction. It's, it's there for us. There's something to be gleaned from it. Don't let his experience, as bad as it was, be wasted. Let it be redeemed by proving to be of some value to you. So may our observation of his sin tonight instruct us and train us that we don't have to learn only from our own experience. The proverb writer says, a wise man is able to learn from the experience of others. It does not have to be my experience to be a teaching moment. So we're watching David and we're outlining his sin on a board, right? What do you learn from this? I want to say this because uh, the church has given a bad rap today about the way we have done this over the years. Maybe there are times, maybe there were times that we presented sex as a bad thing, sinful in itself, made people feel guilty about the very act itself, which filled them full of self-hatred or repression from, from sexual um, behavior in their lives, right? Maybe the church has been that voice that caused people to be really overly, overly cautious about this. And I know a lot of counselors that say, you know, we've caused people to feel unnecessarily guilty about every move that we make. But I want to tell you this, and this passage is, is clear about this. Sexual sin is particularly dangerous. It carries a power that no other sin carries with it. I want our young people to hear this clearly. Um, because it can sound like the church is just trying to spoil your fun or try to put limits when the world is saying exploration is the name of the game. Our world right now is telling our kids to explore and experiment with every variety and not let anyone restrain them or constrain them with boundaries that uh, they choose not to honor. And still yet, we are these old-fashioned voices saying to people, be careful with this incredible uh, gift from God, right? 1 Corinthians 6 says it this way, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. I have studied this out 
my brain, I do not know what it means. Except this. There's something powerfully unique about sexual sin that is not true of any other. That's what Paul is saying. Something about this sin is unique and different. And I have to think it's this. Sex is a wonderful, great gift. In its proper context, it is like God says, let me, you know, I want these people to have to reproduce. But when they reproduce, I want it to be fun. I want it to be enjoyable. I want it to be pleasurable. He could have made us like some other animals that are asexual, that just like, you know, we look at each other, cross-eyed, and we produce. We could have done that. He didn't. He made us come together in a physical connection that has a pleasurable component to it, and he wants this. He is, it's a gift. It's a powerful thing that he says in Genesis. It's a powerful thing that unites us, that makes us one in a different way than anything else. What a powerful force this thing is, right? It's a gift from God that's powerful. But what happens... That means, by the way, that sex is a means to an end. <clears throat> it is not an end in itself. It's a means to something else. What happens, though, when people decide we're going to rip it out of its context and put it somewhere else? We just want to take the means to an end. We don't want that end. We don't want the oneness. We don't want the responsibility of marriage and oneness with each other. We just want to take this gift out, and we want to rip it from its context and put it over here and just enjoy it in whatever context we want. It's just as powerful, but it's destructive. This is what's weird to me about 1 Corinthians 6. Here's the next screen. Notice this verse. Do you not know your bodies are members of Christ? You're part of Jesus. Shall I then take the members of Christ, your body, and make them members of a prostitute? Can, can we join with a prostitute and be indifferent about it? Then he says, never do you not know that he who's joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. When did Jesus say that? The two will become one flesh. In marriage, he takes a marriage context and he says, when you join with a prostitute, you're doing a marriage-like thing. And it's a power just like in marriage, only it's not with any marriage intent. You're taking it out of its context and you're putting it in another one. Sex, wherever it's done, has the same component of power from God, but it can be either instructive in marriage or it can be destructive outside of it, and you choose. And you might be able to think in our world, people in our world think this, they can strip it from its context and just have it for a good in itself and it not do any harm to them whatsoever. They're sleeping around, they're trying different components and different partners, and they're just trying to see who's compatible and yada yada. And we're not doing any damage to ourselves. But God says, oh yes you are. Oh yes you are. You may not know it, you may not feel it. But yes, you are. 1 Corinthians 6 is very clear about this. And all I'm saying, I'm not saying that this sin is a worse sin in the eyes of God than any other. I'm saying it is a particularly dangerous sin, unique in itself, and you better be very careful. We've made a gift from God and made it God himself. And when you take something that's a gift from God and put it in place of God... You're distorting it and making it a dangerous role. In our world, it's the highest good, isn't it? 
In our world, it's the grandest experience. It's the greatest privilege. It's the highest right of humanity. And any restraint or constraint placed upon it, and that's what we're calling for, being faithful to God's word, it's a violation of natural human civil rights. And so sex is presented by the world as this festive, free-for-all experience that's sought on the basis of anyone's desires. And we are just audacious and frumpy enough, I did say that, frumpy enough to proclaim to this world and to our young people, and we're the only voice saying it, there are boundaries to this if you want its proper power. So be clear, we are not saying and I want everybody to hear is we are not saying in any way sex is bad or sex in itself is sinful. We are not. We're not going to be that church. We're not going to make people feel guilty. As soon as they get married, they, all of a sudden the rules change. It's like a light switch goes off. We're supposed to be able to enjoy that. We are not saying that sex is a wonderful thing in its right place. And by the way, I think we've always said this. People characterize us wrong. This account is for our learning. You know the story of David. You will look on that woman, or that guy, in whatever case, you will look at that woman and think she's beautiful, and she is. You will be attracted to and drawn toward her. You will. But you better know that sexual sin is devastating. It's not an act of liberation that leads to self-fulfillment. It's an act with consequences that you will wish one day you were free from. The pleasure to be gained will be overwhelmed by the consequences that flow from that behavior uh, of breaking this. God, in prohibiting sex outside the marriage boundary, was trying to protect you, not keep it from you. I know the world makes fun of us for this, and they always will. So be it. But we need to be the voice for God in this world, for our young people especially. Three things he talks about in this, or at least illustrates in the story. Sexual sin blocks your ability to think straight. This is why you better get in your mind what sexual purity is before you get out in the world in circumstances that cause you to question it. You better decide this before venturing out into the dating world. It's got to be decided and set in your mind already. Don't wait until you're on a date to decide, what do I think about this? In David's case, all the things you value most are suddenly fogged out. You get out there in the realm of the sexual, your body starts pumping that blood and it bypasses your brain. It does. That's what Viagra does, right? It sends that blood through the body. You know what? It bypasses your brain. And suddenly you're not thinking right. The brain you have is not what you're thinking with. It's where the rest of the body gets filled with blood that you start thinking with. It. A mental smoke starts overwhelming your ability to reason. And all you can think of is those selfish desires and nothing else matters and nothing else exists. For David, this is how that works. He sees her and suddenly he doesn't see the woman as a person anymore. We dehumanize women in our culture. We objectify women. 
They become like this piece of something that we judge and evaluate how valuably, uh, sexually attractive they are to us, and we aren't thinking of their souls. This is the same mechanism, y'all, that will lead to rape. It's also the same mechanism that will lead to human trafficking. I look at you and I see you are a means to making money, and so they pull up in a van next to a vehicle with a young person in it, throw them in the back of the van, and suddenly they're whisked off for human trafficking. And if you think this is way far away from us, you better think again. Their eyes are so focused on the object of our desire at that moment, you can't make out the image of God that's in that person. And when you look at someone and no longer think of them as an image of God person, you've stripped them of their identity. Your responsibility to love your neighbor dissolves into a desire for your neighbor to meet your desires alone. One of the weirdest passages in all of Scripture to me is 2 Peter chapter 2. It's, it's got all these strange things. I don't think I put a screen on there, and that's fine. But the, 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 the false teacher, he's out there uh, presenting the spiritual truth of God in a wrong way. He's wanting to tickle your ears so that you give more money. But it says also he's wanting, he's looking at the congregation with eyes full of adultery. He's evaluating the women as he's preaching. And he's wondering, can I manipulate the spiritual impression I'm making to be, make inroads and maybe sexually be involved with the women of his church? Can I tell you something? Do not trust preachers beyond their trustworthiness. Spirituality is one of the most powerful things you can fake and get into the lives of people. I can't tell you the number of people I've met, they meet some guy who has some kind of, uh, seems to have some spiritual authority and it become, makes a great impression on them and suddenly they'll allow this guy to reach into their lives. And I know people who run off with these people, preachers or you know, these, um, even elders or elders' wives do the same thing, deacons, deacons' wives. Do the, and here's the thing that gets them. Here's the thing, I've never been with a more spiritual person in all my life. Are you kidding me? They run right through the stop signs, clearly painted in the Word of God. Run right through them, and you think that's spiritual? They make you think this is a spiritual thing? What have you done? Somebody has faked you out. Eyes full of adultery. They preach a truth that's not accurate to trick people. This woman is not a person. You think only about yourself and you forget the responsibility to other people, does at any time during this seduction, does David think of Bathsheba really as a person? What's this going to do to her, her kids, her husband, her family? Does he think about Uriah at all? one of his prized warriors, does he think about him at all? He doesn't consider his own wives and his own children. This act is going to mess up all of their lives, but he cannot think straight enough to itemize that in his head. And where is, David, aren't you a man after God's own heart? Where is God now, David? The God who, meets, who means so much to him is not 
even in his mind now. That's how powerful sexual sin is. He doesn't even exist. Somehow he's okay with hurting all these other people to meet his selfish desires. This is a Jekyll Hyde moment. Suddenly David goes AWOL and the, and the evil David comes out all because sexual sin and that blood pumping and bypassing his brain. But you're also so focused on the present, the right now, that you forget who you've been, your track record, and you compromise years of integrity. Amazing. Years of integrity, integrity can go down the sink in a few minutes with sexual sin. Not only that, but his future. He's going to lose the ability to stand up to his kids, especially his sons, and be any kind of spiritual example to his kids, and they go crazy. And one day Absalom's going to die, and he's going to say, Oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, it should have been me. And David's right. It should have been him. It should have been him. It messes up the future. All because of a DUI. Deciding under the influence of lust. If he could have just taken a few moments of clarity in his brain and sobered up just a little bit, that mechanism for thinking straight is so overwhelmed. And here's the other thing that's weird. They didn't have birth control. Today you have birth control, so you can control this anytime you want to. They had to control it by knowing what time of the month that they were going to be together, and they picked... The absolute worst day. They picked the worst day. They could not have chosen a worse time in history to do this. You're going to end up pregnant. That's what's going to happen. But they aren't thinking. Y'all, they aren't thinking. And they're thinking of right now, what I want right now. But you're not thinking beyond this. And so therefore, they go and they have this sex act on the worst day. And of course, you know, she gets pregnant from it. In essence, this is an appetite that is so strong it trumps character. It trumps integrity. It trumps proper thinking. It's an awful trade, and he knows it later. He knows it later, but by then it's too late. Right this time, if there's any reasoning, and there was from some people, his servant says, isn't this Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah? Do you hear what the servant is saying? Stay away from this, David. You've got some people telling him, but he's deaf. The blood flow is already bypassing his brain, and his ears aren't functioning. Neither are his eyes. Hebrews 12 says something interesting. I want you to see this. And I'm going to ask you to remember a story back there in the Old Testament that seems so um, unrelated to this, but see to it. This is after a Hebrews writer says, be sure that you handle the discipline from God. All hardship in your life is discipline, and you need to receive it properly. I love that because we don't talk about this. There's a proper way to receive the hardship of our lives. And then there's an improper way, and a lot of us do it improper. We need to be careful about this. He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. We don't want you to miss out on the grace of God, right? So that no root of bitterness springs up. We don't want you being bitter toward each other. And by bitterness, you allow the grace of God to be missed. By it, many become defiled, so that no one is, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Esau. Sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Can you think of how was Esau unholy? And then he goes on to say a little bit about this. Sold his birthright for a single 
meal. You know what the birthright was? The oldest boy got the, I mean, there were some responsibilities with it. He had to make some decisions for the family, but he got a double portion of the inheritance. He's, he had the say in what happens with the family. When the family has an issue and they don't know what to do, they come to the oldest one. He has the birthright. It's his by birthright, right? And so this is one of those incredibly valuable things that governs the rest of your life. It's a privilege for the oldest son. But you know what? He was so hungry one day. You remember this story? So hungry one day, famished. He had missed a meal. He'd been out hunting, didn't catch anything. He comes in and his brother Jacob is cooking some stew. He's a mama's boy. So he was in there cooking. My wife always says, your mama should have taught you how to cook. And I, I just, that's, you know, if you cook, guys, you're a mama's boy. Anyway, so, anyway, so he was cooking, and it smelled so good, and he comes in. He says, oh, I'm about to die. You ever said that? I'm about to die. I missed one meal. I'm about to die. You hear teenagers say this? I'm about to die. The brother looks at him, Jacob does, and he says, I'll trade you the birthright for it. That's the stupidest thing in the world. And what does Esau say? What good is my birthright if I die? All I'm seeing is porridge. All I'm seeing is soup. I don't care about the birthright. You can have the birthright. Give me the soup. Soup. A bowl of soup. And now when you go through the lineage of Jesus, you don't see the name Esau. He traded his place. You see the name Jacob. He traded his place for a bowl of soup. And I'm telling you, there are people, Christians even, who are trading their birthright and the privileges of their salvation for a stinking bowl of the world's soup. We are so consumed with our appetite that that's all we're thinking about, and we're trading in what's really precious and what's really valuable for something, <coughs> excuse me, that I can eat right now. <coughs> and that's what he means in Hebrews 10. Do not lose out on that long-term grace of God for a temporary bowl of soup because you're hungry. Your appetites need to be kept in control. Sexual sin motivates you to do whatever it takes to cover it up. You know this story, and I'm not going to read all of it. it. It just motivates you to do whatever it takes. You know what compounding means? It just adds one to another to another. One to another to another. One sin leads to another sin to cover it up, leads to another sin. Most of the time, lies lead to more lies. And lead to, deceit leads to more deceit. It requires more to cover it up. You run through stop signs and you say, i got to get away from here fast, so you keep running through stop signs. What you should properly do when you sin like this is simply repent. Repent is Christian first aid. 
Repenting stops the bleeding. You say, I'm going to stop right here, and I'm going to confess my sin, and I'm going, to, I'm going to stop it right here in its tracks. That's what repentance is. Even after you're a Christian, after you've done the five steps, the rest of your life, you will catch yourself sinning, and you must stop and apply first aid. Stop and repent and stop the bleeding. But David doesn't do that. It just continues to flow. One thing after another after another. He sends for her Uriah. I need a report, but there's no report in the text because while Uriah is reporting the war, David couldn't care less. It's not about the war report. He just wants this old boy to come home, take a little bit of vacation, sleep with his wife so that he'll think the baby is his. How noble is that? But you see, Uriah is too noble. When you're fighting holy war, you, when you come home for something, you can't go to your wife because the other soldiers can't, and he's too noble to break the rule. And so he sleeps out there on the front porch with the other servants. And he never even goes home. He never walks that three blocks to his wife's house, to his house, because he's too noble. And David hears about it and says, he even sent him a gift. He sent him a bottle of wine and some chocolates and some flowers so he could present it to his wife. And they all arrived at her house. But he never showed up. How romantic is that? I'm going to set up a romantic meal and not show up. Wouldn't that be something? So David thinks I've got to get him drunk. He gets him drunk to where his inhibitions are wrong and he'll go to his house and sleep with his wife. But guess what? <laughs> a drunk Uriah is better than a sober David. He won't do that either. So David goes to plan B, which is particularly ugly. You know what this is. He writes out an order for his death. You get, he tells Joab, you get him on the front line and you back up and you let him die. And he sends this note by Uriah's hand. Whether Uriah can't read or more likely, Uriah is so noble he'll not open it up. And he sends that order to Joab and Joab doesn't do it right. Joab messes it all up. I'm not sure why, but what Joab does, he puts him on the front row, right front row. <laughs> this is why you don't sit on the front row at church. Front lines, right? Sends him on the front lines, and then he backs up, but many more people than Uriah are killed. Don't say David is a murderer of one person. He's a murderer of many because of this action. <coughs> Joab sends back a report. He sends it to his servant, and he says to his servant, when you give this report to David, I want you to add something to it, because he's not going to be happy. He only wanted Uriah dead. When you tell him, you tell him this, I got too close to the city. I forgot, I forgot the lesson we learned from Judges. When one of the judges got too close to the wall and a woman dropped this millstone and killed somebody. You remember this? I forgot that. I think Joab is saying, I think the reason you did this was because of a woman. But he's just telling him, I had to do this. And so David says, don't worry about it. You know, it's, it's, it's war. People die in war. And even a report of more death than he anticipated doesn't shock David awake at all. He's so busy with cover-up. When we sin sexually, there's a particular shame to it. There's a particular deep sense of failure to it, and we don't want anybody to know, and we will do whatever it takes. We will lie, we will deceive, we will do whatever it is to cover it up and do anything but repent. <coughs> no repenting. 
<coughs> excuse me. One last thing. <laughs> Sexual sin fools me into thinking I got away with it. <clears throat> Largely, this is because we watch other people do it, and nothing bad seems to happen. There are as many divorces that happen in the church as outside the church these days. Nothing seems to happen. Just as many spouses stepping out on each other, committing adultery outside of their marriage, and the church is out. Nothing seems to happen. I feel like the psalmist when he says, living faithfully, just doing what doesn't seem to produce any obvious benefit compared to the people who don't. That's the way it looks. By all appearances, David gets away with this. He gets a new wife. As soon as this, he takes, he takes the grieving widow into his house, and everybody talks about what noble gesture this is, and raises the baby as if it's his own. Hmm. Well, plan to. The baby did not live, as you know. But when you get Psalm 51, where David describes that year, it's something like a year the baby is conceived with the act of sin, and part of the punishment is that baby dies, and that's when he writes Psalm 51. So at least nine months to a year after this, David starts describing that year. And while he was going out to parties, and while he was going to church, and while he was smiling and laughing real loud at jokes, on the inside, the guy was crushed. He was devastated by his behavior. He didn't seem to know how to come clean. Didn't know how to do the repentance thing. And he was torn up. Now, there's going to be people in the world that will say the only reason anybody ever feels guilt is because the church tries to make them feel guilt, calling it sin, and it's really not all that bad. But God says, listen, you, you can't sin and get away with it. Even, even Christians who, might be, who are covered under the grace of God and receive the forgiveness, and maybe Christ has absorbed their consequences, the greatest consequences, there are other consequences of sin that Jesus can't fix for you. You're going to suffer consequences. It's going to hurt people. Whether you know it and feel it yourself, it's going to hurt you too. And David feels it for that year. And then finally, well, we'll get to the end of the story. Well, no, not the end, but we'll get to the next part of the story. Is it that bad? Does it sound that terrible? Okay. Thank you. <laughs> right at the very end. In conclusion, no. Psalm 19 has this great psalm, this great hymn, and I want you to listen to it. It's the second half. The first part is, we believe in God because of the world. It's proclaiming God's existence. Somebody says, why do I believe in God? It's going to be because you look at a world and there's no way that we accidentally arrived here. Psalm 19. The second half is, I believe because of the word. Listen to what he says. The law of the Lord. This is our scripture. All of it. The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. When it's down, it revives it. We have songs like this. Give me the Bible. You remember this? Okay. The testimony of the Lord, that's still his law, is sure. It is the wise way. And simple people get wisdom when they trust the word. The precepts of the Lord are right. They rejoice the heart. 
It causes the heart to celebrate. The, the, the commandments of the Lord, all of them, no matter how meticulous it may seem, they're pure. They're pure. They come from where God is, enlightening the eyes. They give us eyes to see things that we can't see our, uh, by ourselves. Next screen. Oh, yeah, yeah. The fear of the Lord is clean. Sorry. I just didn't. The fear of the Lord. Again, that's all the word. These are synonyms for the word. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true. They're righteous. Now, we might sit there and say it's so meticulous and it's so burdensome and it's so hard to keep them all. I get it. I get it. And that's partly true. But that doesn't change the fact that they're right and they're good and they're wonderful and they're helpful and they give us life and they give us guidance, right? More to be desired than gold. You can have lots of gold, but when you are not righteous, you lose it. It loses its value and splendor. Even much fine gold, they're sweeter than honey. They taste better than honey. The dripping honey from the honeycomb. Now listen to this next one. <clears throat> Moreover, by the word, your servant is warned. It's like <clears throat> you walk into a gas station and you see a yellow sign slippery when wet and they just mopped it do you know why they put the yellow sign there because if you're not aware of it you won't be careful and you'll slip and fall and hurt yourself and do you know why god puts stop signs and yield signs and caution signs all through the word because the world is full of dangers and he knows it better than anyone and in his word he gives us warning on the flip side when you keep his word, he rewards you. You miss out on those things that are dangerous, and you get real life. David's behavior in this character illustrates this characteristic of the word. It's recorded, I think, to help us see how this really works. And if we're wise, we will let David's bad moment Help us to avoid our own. His sin can redeem us if we'll learn from it, if we'll take advantage. So I say to young people especially, I, I, I want to say sex is a great thing in its right place. Be very careful with this. Be very careful with everything that leads up to it. Protect your heart. And it's not because uh, I, I don't know the excitement and the blood pumping and the, and, and the thrill that all of that is. I get all of that. But when you, when you put that in its wrong place, it will put such destruction on you that when the good thing comes along, it's going to be difficult to enjoy. And God's people want you to have, I'm going to say this, and some of you are going to cringe, want you to experience the best sex in the world. It's God-ordained in God's place. And to avoid the hurt that has a lot of people reeling in the world we live in. That's why we say what we say. Anyone who needs to respond this evening... You do not have to be guilty of sexual sin to respond. If somebody comes down the, the aisle, it's not because they cheated on their spouse, okay? This is one of those awkward moments, right? But I want you to know that the laws God gives are for our good. 
Everything he asks us to do is for our good. And what he says to us, when you come into the kingdom of God, name the name of Jesus as Lord, turn away from your sin, follow the righteousness of God for a, a whole new life. Be immersed in the waters and rise to walk a life of submission to him. If you're willing and ready to do that, we're ready to receive you as we stand, as we sing.